11 years that followed the execution of Charles I in January 1649 was a period of political upheaval and constitutional change as the victors of the civil wars sought a workable form of republican rule. Whatever the government at the time, its lifespan was shaped by the need to balance, or at least manage, tensions caused by constitutional uncertainty, religious ideology and the demands of the army. In this programme, Professor Peter Gaunt from the University of Chester explains the chronology of the regimes, their achievements at home and abroad, and the cause of their downfall. Finally, he explores why the Stuart monarchy was restored in 1660. The 11 years from early 1649, when monarchy was abolished and England and Wales became a republic, through to spring 1660, when the monarchy was restored in the person of Charles II, and much of the traditional pre-war system of government also returned, were marked by a degree of change and experimentation. Most of those changes appeared to be abandoned and swept away at the Restoration, but in some respects, such as an active foreign policy and religious plurality, this period also set important precedents to which the country returned at a later date. The most obvious type of change and experimentation which these years witnessed was in the constitutional forms which the various regimes took. This was not necessarily a period of unstable or insecure government. The two most durable regimes, the Rump and the Protectorate, lasted for over four and over five years respectively, around the same time as the length of a modern British full-length parliament. The first regime and form of the period was the rump, as it was generally dubbed by contemporaries. This was created in winter 1648-49 to by the purging of the existing House of Commons and then the abolition of the House of Lords. So the rump was the much depleted House of Commons of the Long Parliament now sitting alone. During 1649 and 1650, the members of the rump set up new oaths and loyalty tests, which allowed some MPs who were removed at Pride's Purge in December 1648, or who absented themselves thereafter, to retake their seats. And a decent number did so, so that over the remainder of its lifespan, around 200 MPs took their seats at some point, though the numbers present and sitting on any day was usually much lower. The full house and committees of it sat most weekdays, though the MPs shared the burden of government and administration with a series of executive councils of state, which they established during its lifespan. Its legislative record through the early 1650s, down to its ejection in April 1653, was quite impressive, at least in some areas and it maintained most routine governmental functions, including raising and collecting taxation. Like a traditional House of Commons, its meetings were chaired by a speaker, and on ceremonial state occasions, it was the speaker who played the leading role in welcoming ambassadors and hosting official dinners, the sort of role that would normally have fallen to the king and the royal family. 
In early summer 1653, the rump was replaced by a different regime. This comprised a smaller Supreme Legislative Assembly, the 140 or so members of which had been selected by the officers of the new model army rather than elected by the electorate of the country. This new assembly, which first met at the beginning of July 1653, was and is named variously the Little Parliament, the Parliament of Saints or Barebones. But most historians now refer to it as the Nominated Assembly. It was intended to sit for around 18 months, down to late 1654, exercising full legislative and executive power. In late 1654, it was expected to select members of a replacement nominated assembly, which would sit for a further year from late 1654 until late 1655. The plan said nothing about what would happen next, but perhaps its founders hoped that by late 1655, it might be possible to return to a more traditional elected House of Commons. In reality, the plan was cut very short when the nominated assembly resigned in December 1653, having held office and exercised power for little more than seven months. The next regime to be created and to hold power was the Protectorate, the longest lasting of all the systems adopted during this period. For the first time in English history, it rested upon a written constitution, the instrument of government, drawn up in late 1653 and more or less complete when the new protectoral regime was formally inaugurated and launched in mid-December 1653. The instrument sought to separate legislative and executive powers and to place them in the hands of two different bodies. Executive power was entrusted to a powerful and permanent council of state, whose founder members were named in the constitution, and which generally numbered around 20 members. Legislative powers were to rest with an assured succession of elected parliaments, to comprise a House of Commons sitting alone, containing 460 MPs, representing redrawn constituencies, and elected on a revised franchise. Under the constitution, a new parliament had to be summoned and elected every third year or more often as circumstances required. So the constitution envisaged intermittent but quite frequent elected parliaments and a permanent and powerful executive council. Working with both and coordinating their efforts was a new head of state the chief magistrate of the nation, who was to hold office for life. But that head of state was not titled king, nor did he exercise the traditional monarchical powers. The new head of state was a lord protector, and although granted an income, given use of an array of former royal palaces, and certainly expected to play the leading role in state ceremonies and on state occasions, his own powers were very limited in key aspects of government, including raising and spending state finance, appointing senior state officials, making war and the deployment of the armed forces, the Lord Protector could only act with the approval of Parliament when sitting 
or of the Executive Council when Parliament was not in session. The instrument of government named and appointed Oliver Cromwell, the existing head of the new model army and Lord General of the Armed Forces, as the first Lord Protector. It also made financial provision for an army and a navy and confirmed religious liberty for most Protestants. The protectoral regime remained in place until spring 1659. It was slightly modified by a revised written constitution, the Humble Petition and Advice, enacted in early summer 1657, which slightly shifted the balance of power away from the council and towards parliament, allowed and required the existing Lord Protector to nominate his successor during his lifetime, and also created a new unelected second chamber of parliament. The old House of Lords was not revived, and instead a new nominated second chamber was created. The protectoral regime and system survived the death of the first Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell, in September 1658, whereupon his elder surviving son, Richard Cromwell, succeeded him and became Lord Protector initially quite smoothly. But in spring 1659, Richard Cromwell was removed from office and the whole protectoral system was abandoned. With the ending of the protectoral regime, in May 1659, the Rump Parliament returned and resumed operating as the legislative and executive government. But it was ejected for a second time less than six months later, in autumn 1659. An attempt to replace the Rump with a small, select and very powerful committee of safety and to entrust government to the hands of its dozen or so members proved unacceptable and the committee of safety swiftly imploded. Instead, at Christmas 1659, the rump returned yet again, its third spell as the government. In February 1660, those members who had been removed at Pride's Purge 11 years before, or who had on principle absented themselves since then, were allowed and encouraged to retake their seats. By this date, many of those returning members were conservative and traditionalist in outlook. In March 1660, the rump, or by that stage, a body more closely resembling the long parliament, voted its own dissolution and to make way for a new representative assembly, a parliament in all but name, which was even more traditionalist in outlook. In early May, it voted for a return to government by King, Lords and Commons and proclaimed Charles II as King. Charles, who had lived in exile on the continent for much of the 1650s, landed at Dover on the 25th of May 1660 and entered London in triumph four days later on his 30th birthday. The Republican experiments were over. How are we to explain all these regime changes in the years between 1649 and 1660? A large part of the answer lies in the existence, ambitions and goals of a very large parliamentarian army, the New Model Army. While very reluctant to take direct power itself or to set up an overtly military regime, the New Model did have some fairly clear goals 
which it hoped that a more politically acceptable, broadly civilian regime would pursue and achieve. The principal goal of the new model army was the pursuit of a broad and rolling program, which was sometimes termed moral reformation or godly reformation. This program had several aspects. One was to lift the nation and its people from sin by clamping down on blasphemy, heresy, swearing, drunkenness, adultery, and sexual immorality, ensuring the availability and supporting the work of godly preachers, ensuring strict observance of Sundays and other days of thanksgiving or humiliation for religious activities alone. A second element was reform of the law and judicial system to ensure more equal access and swifter, fairer, more equitable and less harsh justice available for all. A third was some social or welfare reform to alleviate the sufferings of those at the lowest levels of society. And a fourth was the guarantee of liberty of conscience, that is, religious freedoms for Protestants. Having in effect created the rump through Pride's Purge, the army's hopes that it would push ahead with a burst of reforms consistent with this programme and then dissolve itself and make way for some sort of new body were frustrated. In fairness, the rump did meet some of these expectations, especially via statutes clamping down on sin, making better provisions for ministers and bringing the gospel to so-called dark corners of the land, notably Wales. But in other respects, perhaps because of overwork, perhaps because of vested interests, the rump fell well short of the army's hopes and expectations, including in its negligible achievements in the areas of law reform and judicial reform and of social and welfare innovation. That the rump seemed to be in no hurry to dissolve itself, having made acceptable provision for a replacement, added to military impatience and discontent. Eventually, on the 20th of April 1653, the army's patience snapped. On that day, the head of the army, Oliver Cromwell, who was also a member of the rump, stood up in the chamber to condemn the rump's record and then used the troops he had stationed outside to clear the house and to eject the rump. The regime was ended by a bloodless military coup. The next regime, the unelected nominated assembly, was created by the army officers. It was the army officers who selected the 140 or so members of the assembly. And although the membership was almost entirely civilian and the officers were scrupulous in not nominating or selecting their fellow officers, there was undoubtedly a hope that this newly created assembly would be more amenable and in tune with the army's agenda than the rump had been. But the assembly failed in the army's eyes, not because its members were hostile to reform, but because by late 1653, they had shown themselves to be hopelessly divided. Divided between a group of cautious reformers who wished to change and improve existing systems and institutions, and a vociferous and active, more radical group 
who believed in sweeping things away and rebuilding afresh from a clean slate. The result was disharmony and deadlock within the nominated assembly, and again the army found its agenda frustrated. Although the evidence is opaque, army officers probably encouraged the frustrated members of the assembly to resign their powers swiftly and prematurely back to the army in December 1653. The protectorate was the regime of this period that was probably most in tune with the army and the army agenda. The written constitution which gave birth to the regime at the end of 1653, the instrument of government, was drawn up in the main by the senior army officers. The position and funding of the army was assured within that constitution, as was religious liberty for almost all Protestants. Although they were outnumbered by civilians, a group of senior new model army officers became protectoral councillors, and later, under the revised constitution of 1657, many army officers were appointed to the new unelected second parliamentary chamber. And a good number of officers got themselves elected to the House of Commons in all three protectorate parliaments. Above all, the first Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell, was a long-standing and successful military leader. Since 1650, Lord General and Commander-in-Chief of the New Model Army, a position he retained alongside his new role as Head of State until his death. Oliver Cromwell was thus a military man through and through. Oliver's death in September 1658 ended that cosy and generally harmonious relationship. The army were much warier of the new protector, Oliver's son Richard Cromwell, a young civilian gentleman with no real military background or pedigree. Doubts emerged within weeks and deepened during the opening months of 1659 as, far from protecting the army, Richard seemed to support the protectorate parliament he called in criticising the army and in proposing cuts to its size and funding. In another bloodless military coup in spring 1659, it was a clutch of senior army officers who first forced Richard to dissolve his protectorate parliament and then compelled him to resign the protectorship. Between spring and autumn 1659, history repeated itself as the army and its officers first recalled and restored the rump, but then quickly became disillusioned with it and forced it out again. Having sought, and with the exception of Oliver Cromwell's protectorate perhaps, largely failed to create and empower a civilian regime which would live up to its expectation and follow its agenda. Finally, in autumn 1659, some of the senior army officers tried to take power themselves and to establish a military regime to run the country, at least for a while. The Committee of Safety, set up in the closing weeks of 1659, was established by a group of senior army officers and in the main was made up of senior army officers with a few military allies. But such direct and naked military rule was a step too far, even for many military men. The Committee of Safety was opposed by the Navy, by many of the new model army officers and regiments stationed in Scotland and Ireland, 
and by some new model personnel in the provinces of England and Wales too. Their antipathies and opposition both signalled that the parliamentarian armies were now becoming very divided, but also caused a collapse in the will and confidence of key members of the short-lived Committee of Safety, leading to its resignation at Christmas 1659. It had one further important consequence. Aghast at news of developments in London, the new model's long-standing commander in Scotland, General George Monk, backed by loyal regiments in Scotland, decided to intervene to restore order. He and his men marched south during the opening weeks of 1660, brushing aside half-hearted opposition en route, entered London unopposed in early February, and effectively took control of events in the capital. It was under his influence that the rump first voted to readmit the purged members and then voted to dissolve itself. Monk played his cards very close to his chest at this stage, and it is difficult to know when or why he had decided to support and work for a Stuart restoration. But that restoration was in part a consequence of his actions. Alongside constitutional change and experimentation and discord between the army and civilian regimes, another trait of the 1650s was constitutional uncertainty. This manifested itself in several ways. Most obviously, there was a fear of what traditional free parliamentary elections might bring. It is often claimed that one of the reasons why members of the rump were so reluctant to dissolve Parliament in the early 1650s was that they anticipated being defeated in the ensuing elections. Ironically, the catalysts for the army's coup in April 1653 might have been that the rump was in fact about to dissolve itself and call for fresh elections without any restrictions. Rather tardily, the army realised that uncontrolled elections would return a new parliament even less sympathetic to the army's agenda. So fearful were they that the army then shied away from any elections for a while and resorted to selecting the members of the new nominated assembly, which replaced the rump. The protectorate did bring back elected parliaments, but the army-backed constitution, the instrument of government, set out new curbs on who could stand for and sit as an MP in those parliaments and on the qualifications to have a vote in parliamentary elections. Even so, the first and second protectorate parliaments were then purged at or just after the opening of the sessions and large numbers of elected MPs were excluded as they were deemed to be political undesirables who had slipped through the net. A second constitutional uncertainty, which played out during the Protectorate once a single head of state had been restored, was whether that figure should bear the title King. Repeatedly during Oliver Cromwell's Protectorate, there were rumours that he would be offered the crown, a prospect which divided even his supporters. In 1657, the first version of the revised constitution did indeed drop the title Protector, and would have created him king. The proposal caused great controversy and much heart-searching, not least by Cromwell himself, who at length concluded that God 
had not only damned and destroyed the person of the king in 1659, but it also damned and destroyed the institution of office of king. And so he rejected the crown. It is important to remember that in this period, England and Wales quickly exerted control over Scotland and Ireland, and that the English Republic soon became the British Republic. There was always an intention to restore English, Protestant and now Republican control over Ireland and to crush the Irish Catholic Rebellion. In 1649, the new regime at last had a breathing space at home to do so. Between summer 1649 and spring 1650, Cromwell led part of the new model army in a short, sometimes brutal, but very effective campaign in parts of Ireland, which broke the back of Irish Catholic resistance. Although Cromwell was then recalled to England, other senior officers replaced him in Ireland to complete the reconquest. Thereafter, Ireland was run by the English Republican regimes. There was a strong English military presence in Ireland to back up English control, and the English regimes dealt very harshly with the majority Irish Catholic population, many of whom lost their lands and or were forcibly moved to the northwest of Ireland. Land and property in Ireland, like political power and control, was vested in Protestants, and Ireland was united with, but very much under, the Iron Hand of England. Initially, the English Republic may have been willing to see Scotland go its own way. In 1649, the rump abolished monarchy in England, Wales and Ireland, but said nothing about Scotland. However, the Scots pointedly declared the late king's eldest son to be the new king of the whole of Great Britain. And by 1650, the Scots were clearly raising an army to restore Stuart kingship by force in England and Wales. Cromwell, recalled from Ireland, was given command of a new, new model army force. This one sent north to crush Scottish royalism. In the latter half of 1650, and on into early 1651, Cromwell and the New Model Army managed to capture much of southern Scotland, but they were not able to tackle the Scottish Royalist Army, which had pulled back to Stirling and the Highlands. But in summer 1651, that Scottish army decided to drive south, entering England, soon shadowed by Cromwell and other parliamentarian forces. The Scottish Royalist Army got as far south as Worcester, but there, that army was cut to pieces and destroyed by Cromwell and the New Model Army. English forces and generals then mopped up in Scotland, and once more, military-backed English control was enforced. Scotland was united with, but very much under England, and English administrators and generals ran the country, though the Scots were treated far more mildly than the Irish Catholics. Thereafter, on paper and to a degree in practice, by dint of military force and occupation, Ireland and Scotland were united with England. Scotland and Ireland lost their separate parliaments. Despite financial limitations and strains, the Republican regimes of the 1650s ran quite adventurous and interventionist foreign policies, largely successful. 
The rump pursued English naval and commercial interests against the Dutch Republic, resulting in a full-scale naval war in and from 1652, the first Dutch or Anglo-Dutch war. Fought entirely at sea, the English fleet generally had the better of the naval clashes but could not secure a knockout blow. The war petered out and peace was concluded in 1654. The Protectorate was also active overseas. In 1655, a fleet was sent to attack Spanish territories in the Caribbean. An amphibious attack on the Spanish-held island of Hispaniola was an embarrassing flop, but the expedition then captured the more lightly defended island of Jamaica, which was retained thereafter despite several Spanish attempts to recapture it. Escalating clashes with Spanish vessels and fleets culminated in a formal declaration of war against Spain later in 1655. The protectorate allied with Spain's enemy, France, and in 1657 and 1658, a combined British and French army campaigned against Spanish forces in Spanish-held parts of Flanders and the southern Low Countries. The decade ended with the British Republic's navy intervening in the Baltic, in part to broker peace between Sweden and Denmark, in part to protect English and British commercial interests in the region. There was little direct and active opposition to the various Republican regimes at home within England and Wales. Although the size of the parliamentarian army slowly declined during the 1650s, there were still around 10,000 new model army troops stationed at strong points in England and Wales, including a sizable military presence always kept close to London. Combined with a very effective intelligence network run by Oliver Cromwell's friend and sometimes Secretary of State John Thurlow, that made it very difficult for large-scale or organised opposition to the regimes to get very far. There were occasional risings or rebellions, perhaps the largest in support of the royalist cause in spring 1655, but all were quite easily contained and crushed. Even though, in an overreaction to the 1655 rising, Protector and Council introduced in England and Wales a new temporary semi-militarised level of militarised regional control headed by a group of senior army officers, the Major Generals. In 1660, the Republican experiment and the final Republican regimes came to an end and the Stuart monarchy and traditional forms of government were restored almost unconditionally. From exile on the continent, Charles Stuart paved the way for his restoration by indicating his preference for a general pardon and to forgive and forget, and also for a religious settlement based on broad and tolerant principles, while also indicating that he would call and defer to a parliament to work out the details of all of that. But in the main, the restoration occurred not because of Charles's statements, and it certainly didn't occur because of any agitation or military action by English and Welsh royalists. The restoration occurred because of the constitutional uncertainty and the speedy implosion of regimes in the late 1650s, 
and because many key political and military figures, most of them hitherto loyal and active parliamentarians, came to conclude that a return to traditional forms and monarchical government offered a stable and durable future and was the best and perhaps only viable way to move the country forward. This is the third in a series of three 30-minute podcasts in which Professor Gaunt outlines the causes, conflicts and consequences of the British Civil Wars. The other programmes, plus a bonus podcast discussing historians changing views of the Civil War over the century since it ended, are available now. The first programme unravels the origins of the wars, explaining the importance of religious differences, the struggle for political dominance between the Crown and Parliament, and the King's unshakable belief in his divine right to govern, all of which contributed to civil war breaking out in summer 1642. In the second programme, Professor Gaunt describes the key events of the war, the campaigns and battles, and explains why Parliament emerged as victors and why they decided to execute Charles I. The series is now available on our app. Simply go to worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk to find more programmes and news about future podcasts. Please do give us your feedback in the notes and resources accompanying this programme. Thanks for listening.